Chapter 3 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 3 There was one merit, if merit it was, of my mother's establishment. No skeletons lurked in cupboards. They flaunted their grimness all over the place. Such letters as she received trailed about the kitchen for all who chose to read until they were caught up to cleanse a frying pan. As she possessed no private papers, their sanctity was never inculcated, and I could have rummaged, had I so desired, in every drawer or box in the house, without fear or correction. When I took up my abode with Parago, he laid no embargo on any of his belongings. The attic, except for sleeping purposes, was as much mine as his, and it did not occur to me that anything it contained could not be at my disposal. This must be my apologia for reading, in all innocence, but with much enjoyment, some documents of a private nature which I discovered one day, about a year after I had entered Parago's service, stuffed by way of keeping them together in an old woollen stocking. They have been put into my possession now for the purpose of writing this narrative, so my original offence having been purged, I need now offer no apology for referring to them. There was no short of order in the bundle of documents, you might as well look for the quality of humour in a dromedary, or of mercy in a pianist, as that of method in Parago. I managed, however, to disentangle two main sets, one a series of love letters, and the other disconnected notes of travel. In both was I mightily interested. The love letters, some of which were written in English and some in French, were addressed to a beautiful lady named Joanna. I knew she was beautiful, because Parago himself said so. Pure et ravissante comme une aube d'avril. My dear dream of English loveliness, the fair flower of my life. And remarks such as these were proof positive. The odd part of it was that they seemed not to have been posted. He wrote, Not till my arms are again around you will your beloved eyes behold these outpourings of my heart. The paper heading bore the word Paris. Allusions to a great artistic project on which he was working baffled my young and ignorant curiosity. I have love, youth, genius, beauty on my side, he wrote, and I shall conquer. We shall be irresistible. Fame will attend my genius, homage your beauty. We shall walk on roses and dwell in the palaces of the earth. My heart thrilled when I read these lines. I knew that Parago was a great man. Here again was proof. I did not reflect that this vision splendid of earth's palaces had faded into the twilight of the Tavistock Street garret. Thank heaven we had years of remembered life before we learned to reason. I had many pictures of my hero in those strange letter days, so remote to my childish mind. He crosses the channel in December, just to skulk for one dark night against the railings of the London Square where she dwelt, in the hope of seeing her shadow on the blind. For some reason which I could not comprehend, the lovers were forbidden to meet. It rains, he sees nothing, but he returns to Paris with contentment in his heart and a terrible cold in his head. But, I have seen the doorstep, he writes, que fleurons tous les jours ces petits pieds si adorés. I hate your modern manner of wooing. A few weeks ago, a young woman in need of my elderly counsel showed me a letter from her betrothed. 
he had been educated at Oxford University and possessed a motor car, and yet he addressed her as old girl and alluded to the regular bean feast they would have when they were married. And the damsel not only found nothing wanting in the missive, but treasured it as if it had been an impropriated kiss. Joie de mon aime, wrote Parigo, I've seen the doorstep which your little feet so adored touch lightly every day. I like that better. But this is the opinion of the Astico of a hundred and fifty. The Astico of fourteen could not contrast. For him sufficed the absolute of the romance of Parigo's love-making. Yet I did have a standard of comparison. Ferdinand, whom till then I had regarded as the prince of lovers. But he paled into the most prosaic young man before the newly illuminated Parigo. And as for Miranda, I sent her packing from her throne in my heart, and Joanna reigned in her stead. Little idiot that I was, I set to dreaming of Joanna. You may not like the name, but to me it held, and still holds, unspeakable music. The other papers, as I have said, were records of travel, and I instinctively recognised that they referred to subsequent Joanna Less days. They were written on the backs of bills in outlandish languages, leaves torn from greasy notebooks, waste stuff exhaling exotic odours, and odds and scraps of paper indescribable. In after years, in Paris, I besought Padigo, almost on his knees, to write an account of the years of vagabondage to which these papers refer. It would make, I told him, a picaresque romance compared with which that of Gilles Bas de saint the tale of wanderings round a village pump. Such, said I, is given to few men to produce. Parigo only smiled and sipped his absinthe. It was against his principles, he said. The world would be a gentler habitat if there had never been written or graven record of a human action, and he refused to pander to the obscene curiosity of the multitude as to, to the thoughts and doings of an entire stranger. Besides, literary composition was beset with too many difficulties. One's method of expression had always to be an evening dress, which he abhorred, and he could not abide the violet ink and pin-pointed pens supplied in cafes and places where one writes. So the world has lost a new odyssey. The notes formed reading as disconnected as a dictionary. They were so abrupt. Incidents were noted which stimulated my young imagination like stinging nettles, and then nothing more. As soon as Hedwig had taught me German, she grew sick and tired of me, and when she wanted to marry an under-officer of cavalry with moustaches reaching to the top of his Pickelhober, who tried to run me through the body when he saw such a scarecrow walking about with her, I left Castle. And that was all I learned with regards to Castle. Hedwig, save from two other notes, or his learning the German tongue. The following note is the only one he thought worth while to make of a journey through Russia. Novostoyevskaya is a beastly hole, en true en fait. The bugs are the most companionable creatures in it, and they are the cleanest. At Prague, he scribbles on a sheet of paper stained with coffee cup rings, I made the acquaintance of a polite burglar, who introduced me to his lady wife and to other courteous criminals their spouses and families. My slight knowledge of Czech, which I had by this time acquired, enabled me to take vast pleasure in their society. Granted their sociological premises, based on Proudhon, they are too logical. The lack of imaginative power to break away from convention, their convention, 
is a serious defect in their character. They take their gospel of tuum est meum too seriously. I do not inordinately sympathise with people who get themselves hanged for a principle. And that is what my friend Meisdrizen did. An old lady of Prague, obstinate as the old sometimes are, on whom he called professionally, disputed his theories. Whereupon, instead of smiling with the indulgence of one who knows the art of living, and letting her have her own way, he convinced her with a life preserver. His widow, like her predecessor of Ephesus, desiring speedy consolation, I fled the city. My Epicureanism and her iron-bound individualism would have clashed. I played the Battle of Prague a quatre mains sufficiently in my tender childhood. I had no wild yearning to recommence. Here is another. Verona. There is no date. None of these jottings bear a date. When I last saw Padigo, he had not the patience to range these far-off memories. Verona. To me the word recalls immemorable associations, vistas of narrow old streets redolent of the Renaissance, echoing still with brawl and clash of arms, and haunted by the general stock-in-trade of the artist's historical fancy. But did Verona appeal to Padigo's romantic sense? Not a bit of it. At Verona, runs the jotting, I lodged with the cheeriest little undertaker in the world, who had a capital low-class practice. His wife, four children, and whoever happened to be the lodger, were all pressed into the merry service. We sang Funiculi Funicula as we drove in the nails. When I make coughings again, I shall sing that refrain. It has a unisonal value that is positively captivating. Had it not been that a diet of spaghetti and anemic wine, a toward boyau, intestine twister, of unparalleled virulence undermined my constitution, and that the four children, whose bedroom I shared, all took whooping cough at once and thus robbed me of sleep, I might have been coffee-making to the tune of funiculi funicula to the present day. Here and there were jottings of figures. I know now they refer to Paligo's tiny patrimony, on which he, and I in after years, subsisted. It was so small that no wonder he worked now and then for a living wage. I also see now, as of course I could not be expected to see then, that Paligo, being a creature of extremes, would either have the highest or the lowest. In these travel sketches, as he cannot go to grand hotels, I find him avoiding like laser houses the commercial or family hostelries where he will foregather with the half-educated, the half-bred, the half-sold. The offence of them is too rank for his spirit. The pretending simian class, aping the vices of the rich and instinct with the vices of the low, and frank in neither, moves the man's furious scorn. He will have realities at any cost. All said and done, the bugs of Novotoskaya did not masquerade as hummingbirds, nor Mary Giuseppe Sacconi of Verona as a critic of Giolami dai Libri. I don't mind, he writes on a loose sheet, apropos of nothing, the frank dunghill outside a German peasant's kitchen window. This is a matter of family pride. The higher it can be piled, the greater his consideration. What I loathe and abominate is the dung heap hidden beneath Hedwig's draper papa's parlour floor. When I came to this, in my wrongful search through Parago's papers, I felt greatly relieved. I thought Hedwig had seduced him from his allegiance to Joanna, and that he was sorry she had married the sergeant with moustaches reaching to his pickle harbour. 
though what part of his person his pickle harbour was, I could not for the life of me imagine. I pictured Hedwiga as a gigantic, awe-compelling lady. The name somehow conveyed the idea to me. It was peculiarly comforting to learn that she was a horrid girl whose papa had a draper's shop over a dunghill. I no longer bothered my head concerning her, for soon I came across a reference to Joanna. I was lounging one day in the Puerta del Sol, that swarming central parallelogram of Madrid, and musing on the possibilities of progress in a nation which contents itself with ox transport in the heart of its capital, when a carriage drove past me in which I can almost still swear I saw Joanna. It entered the Calais de San Hieronimo. I started in racing pursuit and fell into the arms of a green-gloved soldier. To avoid arrest as a madman or a murderer, for no sane man runs in Spain, I leaped into a fiacre and gave such chase as tomorrow's victim of the bill-room would allow. We came up with a carriage on the Prado, just in time to see the skirts of a lady vanish through the door of a house. I dismissed my cab and waited. I waited two solid hours. That attracted no attention. Everyone waits in Spain. To stand interminably at a street corner is to take out a patent of respectability. But my confounded heart beat wildly. I had an agonised desire to see her again. I addressed the livery coachman in my best Spanish, taking off my hat and bowing low. Uh, Senor, will you have the great goodness to tell me who is that lady? Senor, he replied with equal urbanity, it is not correct for coachmen to give rapscallions information as to their employers. When your Senora bids the rapscallion sit beside her in the carriage and orders you to drive, you will regret your insolence, said I. I turned a haughty back on him but I felt his lackey's eye fixed disapprovingly on my rags. I will hear the sound, said I to myself, of her silvery English voice, or I will die. Then the door opened, and the beautiful lady entered the carriage, and it was not Joanna. The gods were without bowels of compassion for me that day. Another scrap contains the following. Thus have I come to the end of a five years' vagabondage. I started out as a pilgrim to the inner shrine of truth, which I have sought from St. Petersburg to Lisbon, from Tormina to Christiania. I have lived in a spiritual shadowland, dreaming elusive dreams, my better part stayed by the fitful vision of things unseen. Such an exquisite wild goose chase has never man undertaken before or since the dear knight of La Mancha. And now I come to think of it, I don't know what the deuce I have been after, save that instead of pursuing... I have all the time been running away. In my next quest, I must not proclaim my Dulciana too loudly. When Hedwiger's little sister came to me with a doll into which Hedwiger had savagely run hatpins so that the stuffing came out, I consoled the weeping infant with a new doll, and the assurance that Hedwiger was the spitefulest cat as yet evolved from a feline sex. I had no notion at the time of the reason for Hedwiger's viciousness. But now I fancy she must have acted according to medieval superstition, and used the doll as Joanna's hated effigy. I remember that the next time I saw her I criticised her straight Teutonic fringe and fanfaronaded on the captivating frizziness of Joanna's hair. The wonder is that Hedwiger did not run hatpins into me. The murderer's widow of Prague was built of sterner stuff. She cared not a hempen strand for Joanna, a pale consumptive doxy, according to her picturing, 
who had jilted me from eminent swell mobsmen in London. I spent many happy hours over these scraps, building up the fantastic fairy tale of Parago's antecedents, and should have gone on reading them for an indefinite time, had not Parago one day discovered me. It was then that I learned the sacrosanctity of private papers. I thought, my little Astigo, said he, bending his blue eyes on me, I thought you were a gentleman. Only Parago could have had so crazy a thought. I could not be a gentleman, I reflected, till I had a gold watch chain. However, Parago expected me to be one without the seal and token of outward adornments, and I promised faithfully to mould myself according to his expectations. How much of this nightmare Farrago have you read? I know it all by heart, Master, said I. He took off his old hat and threw it on the bed, and ran his fingers through his hair perplexedly. My son, said he at last, if you were just a common boy, I should make you go on your bended knees and lift up your hand and swear that you would not reveal to a living soul the mysteries which these papers contain, and then I should send you to dwell for ever among the tripe plates. But I see before me a gentleman, a scholar, and an artist, and I will not submit him to such an indignity. He put his hand on my head and looked at me in kind irony. I will never tell no one, Master, I promised. Anyone, he corrected. Anyone, Master, I repeated meekly. You will wipe it all out of your memory. I was habitually truthful with Parago because he never gave me cause to lie. I can't, Master, said I, thinking of my dreams of Joanna. The seriousness of my tone amused him. What has made such an indelible impression on your mind? I can't forget, I blurted out, moved both by reluctance to yield over my dreams of Joanna and by a desire to show off my familiarity with French. I can't forget about ces petits pieds si adorés. The smile died from his face, which assumed a queer, scared expression. He went to the window and stood there so long that I, in my turn, grew scared. I realised dimly what I had done, and I could have bitten my tongue out. I drew near him. Master, said I timidly. He did not seem to hear. Presently he picked up his hat from the bed and walked out without taking any notice of me. We did not refer to the papers again until long afterwards, and though they lay unguarded as before in the old stocking, never till this present day have I set my eyes on them. End of chapter 3